appreciate it. <laughs> I think. <laughs> you don't know this, but Brother Keith was working very hard on his introduction of me. And what you heard was his improved introduction. Uh, I want to tell you the five other introductions that he passed by me that I just said, I really would appreciate it if you didn't introduce me like this. Uh, the first one was, Frank Viola is the best speaker we can get on such short notice. <laughs> the second one is, Frank deserves the accolade of a true prophet. He deserves no honor. <laughs> the third one is, Brother Frank has the gift of discouragement. <laughs> the fourth one was, Brother Frank has caused more arguments than Jesus and attracted more followers than Judas. <laughs> and the last one, which I pleaded with him not to use, was, when he's not writing books, he acts as a stunt double for Bruce Willis and Vin Diesel, but don't hold that against him. So what you heard was the improved version. All right. Now, I do not represent the Empire Bank. And uh, if you'd like to know where the vault is, don't ask me. I have no idea. I want to thank all of you for coming this weekend. I wrote a book entitled Pagan Christianity in 2002. Uh, it's been revised, rewritten with George Barna, who is reportedly the most quoted Christian in our generation. Now, after hearing so many things that other people have been saying about George and have been quoting George as saying, he really is the most misquoted Christian in our generation. But uh, that book, take a look at it. If you have read some or all of that book, would you raise your hand? That copy right there. Oh, wow. All right, wonderful. Please put it down. Well, then you know who I am. You know what I'm about. You know what I believe. And you probably have a good idea why I'm here. I am not going to talk about pagan Christianity this weekend. And if you haven't read the book, I would simply say this to you. If you enjoy Sunday morning church services, if you like going to church and listening to a sermon and dropping your money in the offering, please do us all a favor. Do yourself a favor. Don't read the book. Do not read it. It really is not written for you. In fact, uh, we have a warning in the, in the beginning that says, if you like Sunday morning church, it's a Surgeon General's warning, by the way. Uh, don't read this book. Give it away immediately to goodwill. Uh, and some people haven't done it, and that's why I'm getting hate mail from Quakers right now. That was a joke, folks. Bodily threats from the Amish, it never ends. No, there are some people that are very angry with me and George, but most of God's people who have read it have thanked us. And that's not only true for the quote-unquote laity, but we have gotten letters actually every week from pastors who have said to us in so many words, thank you for writing this book. I have always known that what I'm involved in is not the Lord's will. 
and now I have the courage to do something about it. The other letters usually go like this. Uh, Thank God I'm not out of my mind. Other people feel this way, and now I have language to communicate why I feel this way. We are in the midst of, if I can quote George Barna correctly, a revolution. I wouldn't even call it a, a reformation. I would call it a revolution. Reformation is changing something that's already established, you know, reforming, tweaking it, modifying it. This is something that is totally outside of mainstream Christianity. There are one million Christians, adult Christians in America, who leave the institutional church every year. Many of them are people who are not leaving their faith. They're not leaving Christ. As one expert said, they're not leaving the institutional church because they've lost their faith. They're leaving to preserve their faith, which is an interesting statement. We all have spiritual instincts because we have Christ in us by the Holy Spirit. And uh, we have new parts in us, and they long for certain things. One is they long to have fellowship with Jesus Christ. The other thing is they long to have fellowship and community with other believers. And then the third thing is they long to combine the two. We learn Jesus Christ. We grow in Jesus Christ. We develop in Christ by being in community with one another where we can share Christ with one another. And I'm not talking about a salvation message. I'm talking about the living Christ who we experience, we can know. We can know Him together, not just individually. We can share Him together. And that's how we grow up into Him. I would say there are probably four different groups in this room, if I could guess. The first would be the house church in Springfield who put this conference on. And uh, they have invited me initially to come and just give them some encouragement. And I thank them for that. And I'm honored because if you meet outside the religious system, if you meet outside the institutional church, and you start gathering with Christians without a clergy, it is probably the most difficult thing you can do as a believer. And there's only one reason for that. It's because everybody else that you're meeting with is fallen. Do you understand? Everybody else that you're meeting with has problems. <laughs> Serious problems. Everybody else that you're meeting with, some of them are psychotic. <laughs> some of them are downright mean. Now you never see this in the institutional church because we all look pretty and we smell nice sitting in a pew for those two hours. And we're perfect Christians. When I went to the institutional church for a number of years, I was a perfect Christian. For those two hours, I didn't sin at all. I don't think I did. But boy, you put me and you put you together with other believers where you're, you're trying to share your lives together. You find out just how fallen everybody else is. And it's like one person said, he wrote a book called Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. And see, herein lies, herein lies the problem. We don't realize that the problem is not with everybody else, it's equally with us, because we're fallen too. And this is why many house churches don't last. This is why many of them don't make it, because the fall is so deep. And this is why it's always good to have someone to come in from the outside with an objective view and remind one another who Jesus Christ is and who we are in Christ. 
Because we forget that. And we forget real quick when we start having meetings together and we start working things out together and making decisions together without a clergy. It's very difficult. Uh, I guess the second group of people that's here are people who are looking for an organic church where you live. You're looking to experience what I would call organic church life. You want a real experience of Christian community and you've come here hoping that you will get a little help or maybe meet some people. One of the reasons why you have name tags and why you have cities and states is with the hopes that during this weekend you're not just going to listen to myself and Gary. You're going to meet one another. And I'm going to do something too tomorrow, 2 o'clock. I hope all of you can be there because one of the things we're going to do is I'm going to put you in groups and you're going to get to know each other. You're going to get to know each other tomorrow. So please come to that. And on Sunday morning, I'm going to be giving you a lot of practical help on how to begin meeting together. And if you're already meeting, some practical things you can do to help you move forward. I guess the third group would be those who are already part of an established house church. Now, if you are in this room and you're already part of an established house church, what I mean by that is you have a regular group of people that come together besides you and your wife now and your children. That reminds me of a story. The funniest piece of mail I ever got was from this gentleman. And he said, I'm really having a struggle here. I'm part of a house church. It's my wife and my son. And we're having a problem with over-functioning in the meetings. <laughs> I don't know how to deal with my son because he continues to... I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was real and it was genuine. I wanted to frame it and just keep it on my wall. No, I'm talking about people beyond your family, your nuclear family. And you've been meeting together regularly for six months. Now, not counting the Springfield folks who put this conference on... If you're a part of such a group, would you please raise your hand? I want to see. Okay, wow. Ooh, look at that. Okay, great. Wonderful. That's the third group of people that I will be speaking to this weekend and Gary will tomorrow. The fourth group of people are those of you who were dragged here against your will. And there's a good chance that the person dragging you has no idea what this conference is about whatsoever. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on that one. Now, how, how many of you heard me on the radio here, and that's why you're here in this room? Would you raise your hand? Okay, wonderful. Wonderful. I appreciate that. That was kind of a last-minute thing. Okay, let me say a few things about myself. I'm not going to be very long with this. I just want to give you a little intro. I was born at a very young age. I came to the Lord when I was, I guess, 10. And I, I used to really be upset that I couldn't remember when I came to Christ. You know, I, I hear people always say, well, I got saved on March the 15th, 1957 at 2.01 p.m. You know, and I could never remember that. But uh, I was encouraged when I realized that I don't remember when I was born physically. But I know it happened. So I know I was born again born from above. I spent many years in the institutional church. I was part of about a dozen or so denominations. And then I also was part of five parachurch organizations. 
And 20 years ago today, I stopped going to church. I stopped going to the institutional church. I gave it up for Lent. And I have never been back. I have been meeting with Christians outside the religious system uh, or the institutional church for 20 years. I left for three reasons. One, I wanted to know the Lord deeply. When I was 16 years old, something happened to me where I became desperate to know Jesus Christ in a way that I didn't know Him. That was one of the reasons why I went from church to church, because I was seeking someone who can tell me how to know Him practically. That, unfortunately, didn't happen. So that was the first thing. The second thing is, as I began to read the New Testament, I saw that the church as envisioned in the New Testament was so different from everything I had experienced. And I wanted to experience that thing that I saw in the New Testament. And then the third reason is, and if this is not your experience, that's fine. I don't mean to offend anybody because sometimes I'll say how I feel or what my experience was in the institutional church and some people don't have the same experience. And they've gotten a little bit upset about it. I don't know why. But um, I was bored to tears. I got to the point where it didn't matter what church I was a part of, it was the same thing. You know what I'm saying? It was the same performance. The whole thing was the same. I mean, I know, I realize that the Baptists, you know, when they sing, they're like this, and the Pentecostals are like that, but that's not a big difference to me. You know what I'm saying? Then the Charismatics, you know, they, they can jump around and stuff. But I mean, basically, it was the same thing. You know, the, the order of worship even was the same. And I became bored. I was like the little boy who was in Sunday school, and the Sunday school teacher said, why, boys and girls, is it important to be quiet in church? And the little boy raised his hand and says, because people are sleeping. <laughs> and that's the way I felt. I would actually look around and I would watch people nod off. For me, I'll confess my sins right now. I would smuggle books into the service and read during the sermon to survive it. But anyway, um, I have a lot on my heart to share this weekend. And I'm going to attempt to do it in what, three days, which really is not enough time. I guess I'll start by saying this. What I would like to do, and, and Brother Gary, I have no idea what he's going to say tomorrow. <laughs> we did a conference in Germany last year, and he was marvelous. So you don't want to miss tomorrow morning. He is a funny guy. So you will definitely be laughing as well. My heart is very burdened because I have seen house churches over the last 20 years try to gather together, try to capture this thing called organic church life. And some of them have done it successfully and others haven't. I've seen a lot of heartache. I've seen a lot of pain. And for the first time, and I've not done this yet, I want to share some observations I've made and go right to the root and the heart of what I believe is the reason why so many house churches either don't make it or they quite frankly are insipid, weak groups that in my own personal judgment, in terms of their spiritual value and effectiveness, they're not much greater than the typical institutional church. In fact, I would say that if I had to choose between some of these house churches and an institutional church, I would join the institutional church. Does that make sense? that not all house churches are, in my own personal judgment, right or wrong, are 
pleasing the heart of the Lord, are being effective for Him, are fulfilling what's in His heart. And what got me out of the institutional church was not because I was tired of the form of church. Yes, I was. But there was something that I was pursuing that had to do with Jesus Christ Himself. You see? And when I found that, that changed everything for me. And unfortunately, I don't see that in some house churches. So I would draw a distinction between an organic church or an organic expression of the church and a house church. Let me put it to you this way. Here's my definition of a house church. It's a group of Christians that meets in a home. That's a universe. There is as much variety in the house church movement among house churches as there is in the institutional church. But in my experience, most of them, I would say, most house churches would fall into one of these three categories. And you can slice it and dice it even further than this, but I'll give you the main ones. The first one would be they are glorified Bible studies. That is to say that really they're a meeting once a week, usually, where a Bible study is happening and typically someone is leading the Bible study. And there's some discussion, but there's someone leading the Bible study, and the emphasis is on the Bible. Now, am I against Bible study? Absolutely not. Is there anything wrong with the Bible study? No. But that is not the living, breathing, vibrant, Christ-honoring, Christ-centered, explosive, bride of Christ, body of Christ, ecclesia of the living God that we see in the New Testament. It's much more than that. Uh, The second major expression, I guess, that I would say that I've seen most house churches be defined by is that they're a shrunken version of the institutional church. (laughs) You don't know how many letters I've gotten from people who said, I'm looking for a, a house church in my town. I went to this website. It had some house churches in my area, and I visited three of them, and they all have pastors. And he preaches a sermon. And people sit in there. Okay, well, maybe they're in a circle, but still, it's the same thing. We've got a worship team. And all it is, it's, uh, as one of my friends says, it's, honey, I shrunk the church. It's putting it in the, in the house. It's the same song and dance. And you know, here's the thing, folks. Listen, if we are not taught how to do it any other way, we will revert back to what we know. If we're not shown another model, we will revert back, because that's all we know. And there's nothing wrong with that, it's just it's human nature. And the third one, listen now, I see this a lot. I would call it a bless me club, or a social support group. And really the emphasis is on relationships, hanging out. I like hanging out with you. You like hanging out with me. And somehow, somewhere, Jesus Christ is missing in the whole equation. He's not the center of that thing. He's not the source of it. He's not the breathing pulse. It's very human. Is it wrong? No. I like to hang out. I like to watch movies. Uh, I like to go out and to eat in restaurants. But the church of a living God is so much more than that. And so this gets into what I think the heart of the problem is. We are Americans, most of us in this room. Is there anybody here who's not an American? All right, well, we're all American. We're all guilty, okay. (laughs) 
I say that because, you know, people in other cultures, it's, it's not that way necessarily. But in America, we have a consumer-driven culture. We are part of a consumer-driven society. That means that we make decisions in life based on this question. How is it going to suit my needs? How is it going to meet my needs? How is this, whatever it is, going to make me feel? How is it going to fit my tastes, my desires, my likes? And hey, look, we're all shoppers. When we go out and we shop for a car, you know, we don't say, well, I want to get the nastiest looking car I can find, one that cannot meet my needs in any way. Um, no, we, we look for, I hate the color blue, so let me go ahead and get orange or whatever. And then when we build a house, right, same thing. We build the house according to how it will suit our needs. Well, this whole mentality is in the drinking water here. It's a consumerist, need-based point of reference. And what I've observed is that we transfer that same mindset, that same mentality, from our secular life straight into our spiritual life. And we become consumers of religious and spiritual things. And the point of reference is my needs, my likes, my tastes. This is why we're a nation of church hoppers and church shoppers. We got churches, boy, we got churches coming out of our ears in every city. Hundreds of different varieties and flavors and that we can choose from. And the average American Christian has switched churches at least one time. And here's the statistic. 44% of American Christians have switched churches at least one time. I think it's a lot higher than that personally. But at least one time, 44%. Now, just think about it right now. And this is not an indictment, folks. I've been to like, I can't even remember. I mean, 13 different denominations and even within that, in the charismatic movement, I was all over the map. I went to all different types of varieties of that. Uh, but here's my question. How many of you in this room have switched your church attendance from the first time you went to a church at least one time. Raise your hand. Okay, keep your hand up if it's been twice or more. Okay, all right. We can go on here. We'll be here all day. You understand what I'm saying. Okay, now, we're church shoppers and church hoppers. And if you ask the average American, why do you go to this church? Or why did you leave that church? Or why did you join this one? The answer will typically be, Talk to me. What, what are some of the answers? Come on, be honest now. I wouldn't mean my needs. Uh, youth program. Youth program. Didn't believe what I believe. Let's get some other ones. Come on. Didn't like the pastor. Love the worship. Youth ministry. Love the worship. Close to my house. It's close to my house. I heard a preacher once. He was going through this thing about picking churches. And he goes... I heard this like in the 80s. You just reminded me of it. He goes, I know some people, they say, I go to that church because it's close to my house. He said, that's like eating out of a garbage can because it's close to my house. <laughs> it's, it's a ridiculous statement, but I thought it was so funny. The way he was saying it with such passion. But you reminded me of that. Thank you. I had repressed that memory until you resurfaced it. Okay, we can sit here all day, but you understand my point. We look for churches on the basis of how it will meet my needs. Typically, typically, there's always exceptions. Now, that mindset and that mentality 
stays with most American Christians when they leave the institutional church and they start meeting in a home church or an intentional community group of Christians outside the religious system. And it's still there. How's this going to meet my needs? Well, let me tell you something. If that's your basis for meeting with a group of Christians outside the religious system, it won't take long for you to come to the discovery that this group cannot meet my needs. And this is why people often bail on such groups. Now, here's my point. And this will be the central point that I will try to unfold and expand and give definition to this weekend. We are looking for a church that will meet our needs. And we, you and me, are the point of reference by which we make that decision. And we have a God who's out here burning with a passion and an eternal purpose that is not for you, not for me, but for Himself and His own pleasure. And we never think about that. Or we're hardly ever taught about that. If I can put it to you this way, and now those of you who are theologically minded, your circuitry is going to be blown at this moment. And your wheels are going to be going on and you're going to have a real problem with me. But dear brothers and sisters, there's only one criterion by which you and I, as those who belong to Jesus Christ, ought to determine where we fellowship. There's only one standard that you and I ought to use to decide where we will fellowship who we will fellowship with, what church we are to be a part of. It is this. Is this group seeking to meet the Lord's need? He has a need. Now wait a minute. Let's just put the brakes on here. I'm going to give you a scripture here, folks. Turn with me if you have your Bibles. And if you didn't bring your Bibles, shame on you. You're supposed to bring your Bibles at a conference. That's a, it's a little joke there, folks. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, Mark 11, verse 3. I'm going to give you Scripture that the God of creation can have a need. Mark 11, verse 3. Now this is where Jesus tells His disciples to go find a cult that's never been ridden. And in verse 3 of Mark 11... Jesus says, if any person says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. Now I've just given you scripture that Jesus Christ, when He was on this earth, had a need. Alright? Now, I realize that with respect to God's sovereignty, He has no needs. He's all sufficient. Did you hear that? I'm going to have to repeat that again because somebody's going to walk out of here and say, Viola's a heretic. He said, the Lord has a need. With respect to God's sovereignty, He has no needs. He is all-sufficient. He is not inadequate in anything. But with respect to His purpose, His eternal purpose that He has been working out from the beginning of creation, that which His heart is passionate about, the whole reason why He created 
the very thing He's working toward in all human history with respect to His purpose, He has a need. And if you don't like that word, throw it out and use strong desire. (laughs) And the key here is this. It's for Himself. It's for His pleasure. And it benefits us, yes, but we're not the center of the universe, folks. I'm sorry. It doesn't just revolve around us. There's something for Himself. And when we put ourselves in that purpose, and we give ourselves to that need, as it were, then, of course, we're right where we need to be. And we are blessed, obviously. But that's not the prime product. It's the byproduct. And so I want to talk to you this weekend about the Lord's need. And I would say this, if I could put it in a sentence or two, there is no reason, there is no justification for any church to exist except to meet the beating heart of God and His ultimate purpose. There's no other reason. If it's not by Him, if it's not through Him, and if it's not to Him, then it's just a human organization. For the church of Jesus Christ is by Him, through Him, and to Him. And it is for Him. And if you read Colossians 1, you will find that everything on this planet, everything that has been created, was created for your Lord. Not for you or me. I'm sorry to say him everything in creation so I want to talk about the Lord's need or strong desire which is for himself let's talk about the reasons why Christians leave the institutional church I would say they're basically four they're more than that but four main ones how's that number one they got burned out serving the religious system. Alright, thank you. I I would hope that would be true for some of you. Number two, they were bored. Amen. Amen. Number three, they were hurt. And let me say something about hurt. Here's my observation. Typically, if you are a faithful church goer to the typical institutional church and you don't get involved in leadership, you don't try to serve in that system, you're probably not going to get hurt. But if you try to serve, or if you try to get into any position, that's when you open yourself up to what I will call Byzantine politics. You are now part of a hierarchical system. Human hierarchy was never authored by the Lord. In fact... He taught against it. If you read in the Gospels in two places, he says, look at how the Gentiles lead. They lord over one another. And the Greek word there has to do with there's some on the top and some on the bottom. He's talking about human hierarchy. And then he said to his disciples, it shall not be so among you. But we have ignored that passage, many of us. And the result is just a lot of pain. And I guess the fourth one is many Christians are looking for a more authentic experience of the church and of the Lord. And many of us, we don't even know what that looks like. But deep down we say, there's got to be more than this. There has to be. Right? 
You know what I'm talking about? Okay, now, that's one observation I wanted to make. There's another one. This may be a little tough just because of how people can take it. Please understand that when I share this, this is just an observation. That's all it is. But I think it might help. Instead of thinking to yourself, okay, I, I know where Bob fits into these three categories. Now, that's Sally. Absolutely, that's Sally. Oh, oh man, he's got Gary pegged. Uh, instead of thinking that, think, huh, do I fit into any of this? And forget about your brothers and sisters, okay? We all have different experiences. We've all been through different difficult patches in life. Thank God where we are now doesn't have to be where we will be tomorrow. And where we were yesterday may very well be different from where we are today. You follow what I'm saying? In my observation, house churches, Christians outside the organized system, tend to attract three kinds of people. And this is just 20 years of just watching. Number one, high commitment Christians. High commitment. Now, high commitment means, in my experience, these are people who really are serious about the Lord. They have a desire to serve Him. They have truly made Jesus Christ Lord of their life. They have given their life to Christ. And they want to please Him with their life. Now, hey, some of them are legalists. And some of them are really difficult to live with because some of them are self-righteous. But others are not, and they're full of grace, and they really mean business with the Lord, and they've kind of chilled out a little bit in the sense that they're not judging other people who aren't as committed as they are. That's maturity, by the way. Young people tend to be more legalistic than older folks when someone's on fire for the Lord. You understand. You wouldn't want to have met me when I was 21 years old. I'd drive you crazy. Um, you know, Jesus, he read their thoughts. I heard someone say, you're still driving people crazy. <laughs> what are you talking about? So the high commitment is the first kind of person that's attracted to Christians, meaning outside the organized church. They're done with the game. They want to be serious with the Lord, with the other groups of Christians. The second kind of person that is attracted to a house church or Christians, meaning outside the organized church, are those who I would describe as high maintenance very needy people. Some of them so needy that they are like black holes of ministry. <laughs> where you give and you pour out and you help and it's a black hole. You will exert all energy for years and for some reason nothing changes. And they are the genius of God to put in your house church to test the limits of your patience your wisdom your sanity and I'm not making this up I'm dead serious I, I can give you names of people who fit this description and bless their hearts I don't know why they're like this but they're high maintenance and uh, many of them have been kicked out of institutional churches I'm speaking in generalities folks all right, now the third type, believe it or not, it's low commitment people. Low commitment. They have been burned out serving a religious system, serving God under pressure from leadership, and they're just done. They're done. 
And some of them have reflected on that and said, this has gotten me nowhere and the Lord hasn't really met His billing. But I still want to be a Christian. But I want everything to just be on low volume. Just, you know, let's relax. Let's not take this Christian thing seriously. You know? I mean, I'm going to heaven. That's the object of the game, right? So, you know, let's just chill out and hang. And any time there's a serious call of the Lord, there's this resistance. Because they've gotten burned, they've gotten hurt, their expectations haven't been met. And so now they just want everything to be low commitment, low volume. You know, if I can make it, I'll be there. If not, hey, it's cool, we'll hang some other time. And these are people that typically want intimacy without devotion and commitment. And everything is superficial. And here is my observation in addition to that. Every group of Christians will typically have, at some point, maybe not in the beginning, but at some point, you will have those three groups of people in your church. You will have the high commitment, you will have the high maintenance, and you will have the low commitment. And there is tension between the high commitment people who want to go forward in Christ, they want to grow spiritually, they want to do something for the Lord for His purpose and desire, and they might not use those terms to communicate it, but they really want the Lord. There's tension between them and the low commitment who say, whoa, 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 too serious, time out, no, I don't want to go there, just kind of keep things on the down low. And then, of course, there's the high maintenance that's driving them both crazy, you know, in the middle of the whole thing, sucking the life out of... uh, And so, what tends to happen is this. If the high commitment group is not in the majority, or it's not strong enough in its resolve to move forward regardless the group will eventually dissolve or it will split. That's typically what will happen. It's not going to stay that way. So, you all owe me $10,000 for that insight. And I'm quite sure you've never heard that anywhere because I just thought of it this morning. I'm totally joking, folks, really. I'm I'm trying to keep your attention. That's why I'm making these outrageous statements. Here's what I want to do. I want to talk to you about and I'm going to start tonight, and I'm going to really develop this tomorrow night, and Brother Gary's going to speak in the morning. I want to talk to you about the most basic ingredient, the most fundamental factor, the rudimentary vision that must be shared by a group of Christians if they will be a true expression of the body of Christ, if they will truly be an authentic expression of an organic Church. Organic church simply comes from the fact that the church is an organism, not an institution. So an organic church is a church that is true to the fact that it's an organism, a living organism. And I'll just give you a definition of an organic church right here that's real simple. It's a face-to-face community that lives by divine life. Okay, do you realize that you have divine life inside of you right now? That's what being born from above is. That's what being born again is. That's what regeneration is. God, by the Holy Spirit, has come to live in you. And not just to be there so that when you die, you'll go to heaven. 
but so that you can live by that life. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, and I live by my Father, so he that partakes of me shall live by me. It's a group of Christians that are learning to live by Christ together and express Him in the earth. That's a powerful, powerful thing. And that's what the body of Christ is. And so that's what an organic church is. Now, what is the least common denominator whereby a group of Christians should gather together? And this is so important, and I really wish that every house church would listen to this point, and this weekend actually. Proverbs 29 says, and, and I'm sure you've heard this, without a vision, the people perish. Well, the Hebrew word there means disintegrate. And basically, it's a spiritual principle. Without a common vision, a group of people, if they don't have a shared vision, they will fall apart. They'll run amok. Division is the result of not having a shared vision. It's having two visions and we're not all going to agree on everything, and that's not what the church is. It's, boy, it's Jew and Gentile put together. Talk about two different types of people. Jesus broke the middle wall of partition, and now you have these two very different groups of people coming together and loving one another and being one body. That's incredible. We're going to have differences of opinions. We're going to have different takes on the Scripture. We're going to have different gifts and different emphases. But there has to be a common vision. Because if there's not that common vision to hold us together, you will. We will divide. There's no question about it. So, let's talk about the Lord's need. Let's talk about what Jesus Christ is looking for in the earth. Let's talk about what is on God's heart as it concerns the church. Let's talk about this common vision, okay? Alright, three people. Four people are awesome. Alright. I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do it, to be honest with you. Uh, slowly, perhaps. I would like you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 58. Luke 9, 58. And you know, I'm going to tell you stories. Instead of us looking at the stories in Scripture, and then me rehearsing what we read, I'm instead going to tell you the stories. Do you have any idea why I'm going to do that? It's not because I'm going to twist the story and change it. It's because if I start reading the stories, you're going to get bored. And I'm going to lose half of you. Because it's late. Because it's Friday. But I will give you the references when I'm done, and you can go home and read the stories yourself. How's that? Is that fair? I'm going to read one passage. Luke 9, verse 58. Luke 9, 58. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Now here is the God of creation, 
God the Father created all things in and through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ entered into this planet. And here he makes this arresting statement. I have come here to the very earth that I have created. And foxes have places to dwell. And so do birds. But I, the Son of Man, I have nowhere to lay my head and rest. Now I will submit to you that there is an entire world in that passage of Scripture. And I'm going to unfold it. When Jesus Christ came into this earth, He was rejected everywhere. In all quarters, He was rejected and not received. He came into the earth through the womb of Mary in the town of where? Where was He born? And He couldn't even find a decent place to be born. There was no room for Him. And there He is, being born with the animals, where the animals stayed. Then, He grows up in the town of Nazareth. He begins His ministry. And whenever He's in Nazareth, He is rejected. From His own mouth, He said, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town. I have no honor here. And the scripture says he could not do many mighty works there because they did not believe in him. He's rejected by his own siblings. His brothers and sisters did not believe in him. When he was two years old, he was hunted like an animal by Herod. And he had to flee to Egypt. Then he came to his own people, the Jews. And remember... He was weeping over Jerusalem and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wanted to bring you under my wing and you would not receive me. John says in the opening chapter of his Gospel, He came unto His own and His own received Him not. He was rejected everywhere. Even Samaria, when He went to Samaria... Because he was going to Jerusalem, they rejected him and didn't want him in the town. They told him to get out. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that absolutely riveting. Jesus Christ, the Creator and the Savior, is rejected everywhere. But there's only one exception to that. There's only one place on planet Earth where he felt at home. There was only one area on the globe where he felt at home. It was a little village called Bethany. And four people lived there. A woman named Mary, her sister named Martha, their brother named Lazarus, and a leper who was cleansed, whose name is Simon. And the last six days of his life on earth, he went into the city of Jerusalem during the day. But every night he refused to stay in Jerusalem, for they rejected him, and he retreated to this little town, this little village called Bethany. And he stayed 
with Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Simon. It was the only place that he could call home. It was the closest thing to home for him. It was there in Bethany that he had a place to lay his head. Now, Bethany was this tiny village. It was only two miles away from Jerusalem. It was actually located on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And there were many poor people there. In fact, one of the meanings of Bethany is house of the poor. I want to very quickly go through some of the encounters Jesus had in Bethany and why he felt at home there. And I'll tell you something, brothers and sisters. We can learn a lot about the church by looking at this little town. I'm not going to rehearse for you all the scenes and all the encounters, just a few. The very first one we find in the book of Luke And Jesus is with his twelve disciples, and they're in the town of Bethany. It's only two miles away from Jerusalem. And there's a woman who owns a home in Bethany, and it's Martha. And the scripture very clearly says, And she, Martha, received him into her home. She welcomed him. And so he came in with his twelve disciples. They're there also although they're not mentioned, but they're there as you read the the story. And they're sitting in the living room, and Jesus is there in the living room. This is the private room in the first century. And Martha's sister, probably the younger sister, is sitting in the living room at the Lord's feet. And Jesus is sharing His Word. He's teaching And the twelve are there, as they always are, at his feet. They've given up all to follow him. And Mary is there, also at his feet. And Martha's in the kitchen. She wants to prepare a big meal for him, which is beautiful, actually. I mean, think about it. It's wonderful. She wants to prepare a meal for the Lord. As the tick of the clock goes by, she's waiting for Mary to join and help. And there's no sign of Mary, and she's getting angrier and angrier to the point where she gets up out of the kitchen, runs into the public room, and demands that Jesus tell Mary to join her and help prepare the meal. And Mary doesn't say anything, but the Lord responds. And he defends her. And he says, you're really troubled. You're really distracted. Mary has chosen the best part. And I will not take that away from her. Now, you may not realize this, but one of the main reasons why Martha was so angry is because what Mary was doing was scandalous. You see, in that day, every home had a space for the men and a space for the women. The men were allowed to stay in the living room, the public area. That's where they sat. That's where they talked. That's where they made decisions. That's where they had fellowship. That's where they hung out, if you will. And the kitchen was where the women were. And the only place in the home where the men and the women shared was the bedroom 
and there was an outside area where the children played and the men and women can be there. And here's Mary, a woman, sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is the position of a disciple. And she's in the area where only the men are supposed to be. And Jesus not only allows it, but he defends it. Now all the sisters should be happy right now because your Lord has invited you to be a disciple on the same footing as every man. That's what Bethany is. It's a place where men and women bow at his feet. It's a place where his word is heard. It's a place where his own are mesmerized by him and listen to him speak. And I'm more concerned with that than anything else, including serving. And more than anything, it's a place where he feels at home. And I'll tell you something, you know where he feels at home? He feels home where (laughs) there is a group of people that will receive his word and will sit at his feet and listen to what he says and do it. Now, I was part of the charismatic movement for many, many years. And one of the things that I was told over and over again, we prayed for this, God visit us. God, we need a visitation from God. Let's pray that God will visit us. Visitations from God. You know, because visitations from God, God blesses His people during a visitation. Well, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. The Lord is not interested in visiting. He wants a place where He can feel home and dwell. If I'm a visitor, that's not my home. 